0: Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I got a chance to go towards the end of this past week to Atlanta for the what's called the G3 Conference. I think it stands for uh, Gospel Grace and glory, I think, um, and uh, it was about i don 't know 8,000 eight thousand or eighty four hundred uh, people there at the Atlanta Convention Center next to the airport uh, for preaching <laughs> and uh, so uh, Steve Lawson was there, and um, got to hear him twice uh, they let They let Lawson speak twice, everyone else gets one, you know but <laughs> um, so and um so we had a great time, and they will post those uh, messages actually up on uh, online, I think g 3 Uh and yeah, I'd recommend uh, many of those to you in the weeks, they're not up yet, but in the weeks to come, um, those are a great resource if you're interested, and the theme was the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. So um, very good to catch up with friends and from seminary that were there as well, and um, and uh, give updates on our church and uh, it's just so good to be back here though and to worship here uh, with with you all this is my favorite place to be uh each week and to worship with god's people and these people Emmanuel bible church people so it's good to be with you again and continue our study in luke and um talking to a number of my friends you know we always ask like when we see each other what are you preaching through and, uh, and I was like, I'm preaching through Luke. And they were like, oh, Luke. Oh, man, I'd love to do Luke. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you need to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm excited that we get to continue our study in Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 8. And last time we looked at verses 1 to 15. And we are going to look at verses 16 to 21 this morning. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 8, verses 16 to 21. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the word of the living God. Let me just pray again as we study the word. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit upon your word and in our hearts, uh, that we would understand it, and then you would work in our hearts to respond to it by trusting in you, repenting of sin where you reveal it. Give us listening ears and eyes that can see. And Lord, would you excite us again with your word and with who you are, that we might worship you truly in spirit and in truth through devotion of our hearts, fully engaged in right doctrine. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. There's an old Scottish story where a wife, during a sermon towards the end, looked to her husband and asked if the sermon was done. Her husband looked back at her, and he said, no. And then he said, it has been said, but it has not yet been done. (laughs) I love that story. And that is the reality that we must all regularly keep in mind when we hear the word of God preached. And as we read the word of God or hear it taught in any context, for that matter, The point is this, that it is not merely enough to hear the word of God, but we must do something with the word of God. When we uh, finish uh, each Sunday and the sermon is completed, it has been spoken, we might say now, uh, now it is the job of all of us to be doers of the word, regardless of, uh, or uh, dependent on what that text is particularly telling us at that point. The reality is that you are never, you and I are never neutral to the word of God. In other words, we are either heeding the word or we are becoming hardened to the word. Uh, The more you fail to hear the word aright, it creates sort of a callous on your heart to the word, and it hinders you from future times of hearing the word, It builds up a a hardness, uh, an inability to feel conviction and to respond in obedience the next time you hear the word. However, on the other hand, when you become a regular doer of the word, seeking to respond to what uh, has been made known to you through the scriptures, whether in your personal reading or through listening or uh, online or other resources, reading a book or hearing a sermon, when you become a regular doer of the word, responding to that, you get more and more. Your understanding of the word deepens. Your joy increases. Your love for the Lord increases. Your hunger for the word increases as well, because God grants you more and more insight into the word as you obey it, and that's the way it's designed to work. Now, we are looking at verses 1 to 21, this big section that we started last time. And the whole focus of this section is how you hear the word of God or how you respond to the word of God, what you do with the Bible after you've heard it. And that's what Jesus is teaching about. Uh, You remember the gospel of Luke? We'll just rewind a little bit here. Uh, Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save, that which was lost. And so you could think of the gospel of Luke in that way. The beginning of uh, Luke's gospel, the son of man came, you have the birth narrative, uh, to seek, and that's where we're at right now in this section where he is going out and he's healing and he's showing previews of the kingdom, but he's also proclaiming the message of the kingdom and how to be right with the king. And then he will save the lost, Uh, in those final chapters of Luke's gospel, as he goes to the cross, as he's he's, uh, put on trial, as he is crucified, he uh, is raised from the dead on the third day, and he then instructs his disciples from then on to proclaim this message. That's the gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in this section, there's really two sections on the seeking side, where first he's in Galilee, which is in the north part of Israel, and he's doing all this ministry there. And then at there's a shift that happens in chapter 9, verse 51, where he moves to Jerusalem. And then from 9 to 21, uh, chapter 9 to 21, he's going to be moving towards Jerusalem, headed towards his death and his crucifixion. So right now, we're in this section in Galilee still, and he's, he's speaking to the crowds, but a transition has taken place that we pointed out last time, that many people, especially those who are the religious leaders who represent Israel, as they've heard the message that Jesus is proclaiming, they have become harder and harder towards the message. They have rejected the message. In fact, they've gone so far as to say that the explanation for Jesus' miracles and the works that he's doing is to be found in Satan. That they are saying he's doing these works by the devil. And so it's at that point that Jesus shifts his teaching uh, methodology, we might say, towards the crowds. He begins to speak in what are called parables. And parables are often misunderstood because they're, they're thought to just be a story that's told to make something clearer for people. But we learned last time that, that the opposite is the case. Jesus begins to tell parables to obscure the truth, to, to not make it clear. To certain people, but then when he explains the meaning of the parable, it makes it crystal clear to those who have the explanation. And so this is a form of judgment to those who have already rejected the message that was clear for these, like maybe two years of ministry of Jesus preaching, but since they failed to respond to it over and over again, in a way, this is a merciful judgment because he doesn't want them to keep having more revelation that they'll be accountable to on the day of judgment because they just responded to, they didn't respond to more and more revelation, he starts to speak in these stories that he doesn't give an explanation to when he speaks to the crowds. But then later, those who seek him out and say, what are you talking about? Can you explain this? To them, he explains it. And he gives them the privilege to know the the mysteries of the kingdom, the mysteries of what the parables mean. And, And then when he explains it, it's very clear. It's very plain. We saw the four soils, right? And we saw that each of these soils represent a human heart. And the seed that's sown on them represents the word of God. It's like Jesus gives you the answer key. But before that, I don't know if you've ever seen these like um, ciphers, right? Where you, you have a cipher and you, you have these you know different clues and stuff and, and you're sending a message to someone, but they look at it and it's like, What is that? It doesn't make sense. But then you give them the the cipher or the code, I guess maybe that is called the cipher, and and it helps you almost decode what it means. In a way, sort of, that's what the parables are like. You get this story, and you're like, well, I understand the story. It's about a sower going out to sow seed in a field. But what does that mean? Like, what is that, what is the value of that? What is, what are you trying to say to us? And then Jesus explains later, here's what it means, and he shows you what these things represent. So, That's what's happening. He's changed this teaching tactic. And so for those who are really eager to know the truth, they want to respond to Jesus, he gives them the explanation and they get more truth. He reveals more to them. They get extra. But for those who've rejected, even what they think they have is taken away from them. And so now Jesus is beginning to further explain that in our passage this morning about how the disciples need to respond to the word of God. Uh, We've been looking at three implications, really, from the ministry of the word of Christ so that you might rightly respond to it. And last week, we looked at two of the three. The first in verses one to three was that there is the need to support the ministry of the word. When we've been benefited by the word and changed by the word, it then leads to a desire to see the word go out to others so that they might hear the transforming message of the Bible and of Christ. And so you see a number of these women and the the transformation that's happened there, and then they are supporting the the work of Jesus. Secondly, we saw uh, that the need to survey the soils of the word, these four different hearts. We saw Jesus tell the parable, and then the the disciples ask the question of why parables. Jesus explains that, and then he gives the explanation of the parable. And it's these four hearts. And we, we pointed out that the three of them represent people who are not true Christians. And then the last one, the fourth one, are those who have truly responded in faith, and they continue to respond in faith through the duration of their lives. Uh, the first one, we, it was stolen faith. It, it's sown that they hear the gospel message. And remind you, all of these are people who hear the gospel message, right? We're not talking about people who have never heard the gospel here. Jesus is talking about those who do hear the word. And so here's a person who hears the word, but immediately it's snatched away. And this happens in various ways, but there's no growth. They have a hard heart. The second is the, the shallow soil. It, it lands on the ground, and then boom, it, it, it pops up, and it seems like it's, it's beautiful and, and good, but it, it doesn't have— um, a good root system, because there's this limestone uh, rock underneath, and it doesn't allow moisture. And so the heat comes, the trials of life come, and they give up. They stop following. And they show a great show of it. We actually talked about that a little bit in our Sunday school and church history and some of the second great awakening. And a lot of these people who had these great responses, eager, and then shortly thereafter fell away. And then the third soil is the the sidetracked faith. And it's those who who seem to make a response to the gospel, but then over time they get choked out by pleasures, cares of the world, um, different pursuits, that in and of themselves may not be sinful or, or wrong, but they just take priority and precedence over one's pursuit of Christ. And so Jesus warns about these three responses, and he's telling his disciples also to know, hey, you need to be able to discern what's going on in someone's heart and life as it comes to their hearing of the gospel and to know that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ is actually a follower of Christ. And so then, who is the true follower? Well, he says it's the the soil that it falls upon, and it bears fruit, and it bears an incredible fruit compared to these others. It it bears the fruit of a transformed life, and it does that with patience. In other words, it continues to bear fruit over time in, in perseverance or patience, despite the distractions of the world despite the trials of the world. And so that's the the four that he gives. That's the survey of the soils of the word. Finally, uh, this morning, we look at the need to submit to the teaching of the word. And that's what we find in verses 16 to 21. Submit to the teaching of the word. And as we look at this point here, really we want us to see four implications from Jesus' teaching on submitting to the Word. Four implications from these verses. Let's jump right in. The first one in verse 16 is the need to receive the illumination of the Word. The need to receive the illumination of the Word. Look again at verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it, with a jar, or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, this isn't so much another parable as it is a, a proverbial statement. Uh, Jesus is making a very obvious point, uh, and don't think of a lamp like maybe you have in your house, but this is like a, uh, one of these ancient oil lamps. Uh, lamp, lamps that uh, were made out of clay, and they were hardened, and then you'd put oil in it, and then it stick a wick in, and you would light that, and then you'd, you, they're pretty small, actually. I have a, a replica of one and, uh, in, my, in my study, and uh, they're just really tiny, and you just put this up, and it's actually on my bookshelf, and so if it were lit, uh, it would, you'd put it in a high place to, to give light don't give it a lot of light, but if you had multiple of these, it would, it would fill up uh, light for the room. But this is a very obvious point. <laughs> you don't light a lamp and then hide it away because it, its very purpose is to give light. You don't put it under a bed. You don't, you don't hide it somewhere. Why would you light it in the first place <laughs> if the point was to show light? So, you don't light a lamp to keep things dark. That goes against its purpose. And so, this, these lamps, like light, light today, uh, are for the purpose of illumination. Illumination. And God's word is often compared to light. Psalm one nineteen. This this chapter, this gargantuan chapter, we've been reading over the last few weeks. Uh, two passages that are pertinent to this, Psalm 119, 105. You probably could just say this. You probably already had it coming to your mind. Your word, yeah, is a light. Your word is a light or a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. I regularly experience that as I study the word. You know, I come, I I open the Bible, and I start to study a new passage, and sometimes I read it, and I'm like, okay, where where are we going to go with this? You know, and as I study more, it's like there's the unfolding of light. The more you keep your head in the book and study and read and pray, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Right, the clarity of scripture doesn't mean that it's always easy to get at the meaning, but it means that the meaning is when a proper study of the text has been made, it's undeniable that, that it means this and only this. It couldn't mean anything else. Right, calculus is hard, <laughs> but not because there's like so many different answers to a particular question, but because you have to know so much to get to that answer, right? And so certain areas of Scripture, yes, are are maybe we would say more difficult to get at the right interpretation because there's a lot to to pull together. Other things more plain and, and they're more like addition and subtraction, right? But there's only one right answer, and that's the way the Word of God is. But as you get to that answer, as you study the Word and keep your head in the book, it just becomes clearer and clearer. It's like light is just coming and it's turning on. Something that was not as clear to you, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And what is the result of that in your life? When the word of God becomes clearer, just take one text, when the, when the meaning of one particular passage becomes clear to you and it's undeniable and you embrace that by faith, that produces unshakable conviction and courage, right? Courage is built out of deep convictions. And as you seek to live the Christian life before a world that does not value that, you need convictions. You need courage to stand. And how are you going to have courage? Well, you need convictions. How are you going to get convictions? Well, you have to have utter confidence that the text is saying what it's actually saying. And that comes back to the clarity of scripture. The scripture is clear, but the work must be done. If there's still confusion as to, uh, maybe it doesn't mean that. So maybe I don't need to take this stand. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then your options are, I believe it and I'm gonna stake my life on this or I don't believe it and I'm gonna reject it. But, but if you're a believer, your option is not to reject it, <laughs> it is to believe it because Christ is your Lord, you're not your, 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 your own Lord. And so when the word becomes clear, you go, this is it. Whether I have to lose my job for this, whether I have to lose my life for this, this is true. I have to, I have to stand. And that's the courage we need. And so we need the, the illumination of the word. We need to receive the illumination of the word. Now, it's not just the, the, the word of God written that is light, but Jesus himself, the, the word of God incarnate is light. John 1, sorry, John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Even earlier in Luke's gospel, Zechariah, when he thinks about and the uh, coming of the Messiah, he writes this, or he, he says this, Luke records it in Luke 1, verse 76. He says about this messianic child, and, and you child will be, or he's talking about his son, uh, who will speak about the Messiah, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. See that? The Messiah is likened to the sunrise that visits us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Simeon, remember old Simeon, it's a little awkward. They go into the temple, and this guy takes their baby, <laughs> and he's like, I can die now. <laughs> you're like, oh, hand the baby back. <laughs> um, but no, Simeon has been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah, and now he sees him, and he just erupts in praise to God at seeing this in Luke 2, verse 29. Lord, now, you're, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is what God's word does. It gives light. It gives illumination. It shines as a light and reveals the true nature of things. How things really are. We might call it reality. And so we might say that the word reveals truth. <laughs> I remember, the, this just came into my head. Uh, I remember when I was visiting the master's seminary before I went there to go to school and I was on a little prospective student trip and they were giving, us a, giving me a tour of the, of the campus and they took me to John MacArthur's office and, uh, and I went in and the thing that stood out to me was someone had given him a, um, a like, I don't know if it was a painting or just a sign that was printed and it was on an easel in the corner of his office and uh, obviously it was there temporarily because, you know, someone had just given it to him. But I walk in his office and there's this big sign that just says truth, (laughs) truth that they had given it to him. And I was like, man, that is so good. But that is what the word of God does. It reveals truth. Now truth as a concept our world has totally rejected our culture presently. Uh, They cannot define it, or not rightly at least. But we might just simply say that truth is that which corresponds to reality, the way things really are. Um, So we could say it a number of different ways. Truth is that which conforms to the nature of God because he is the basis for all reality. Truth is that which conforms to the word of God because the word of God is God's word and he knows all things. So, we just say street level definition, elevator definition. Someone asks you, well, what is truth? You know, like Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? You say, truth is that which corresponds to reality, the way things really are. So, the word gives light to that which is true and real and right. The word sheds light on everything the light on who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. The nature of God. It reveals uh, the truth about who man is, that we are image bearers, and yet we are fallen in our ancestor Adam, and we are guilty before God for our personal sin as well as Adam's sin, and we are desperately in need of forgiveness and righteousness, and that we are unable and unwilling to come to God in and of ourselves. It tells us the truth about what salvation is, about the need for a God-man mediator, who is the, the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it tells us of his righteous life. It tells us the truth about how salvation must work. The only way atonement can be made through the death of a perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us of resurrection, the truth of that. It tells us where the world is headed. It tells us the purpose of life, so many other things. Jesus' point is that with a physical lamp, no one would light it only to then seek to conceal the light. That would go against its purpose. And therefore, when the light of truth is set before you, you ought to respond to its illumination and not seek to conceal its revelation. You should seek its clarity. When the light shines you should seek to see what it is shining upon and respond to that light to understand reality better and submit yourself to that. So if the word is light, then what would it mean to hide the light? What would that mean? What would that look like? Well, hiding the light represents rejecting this illuminating work of the word. It would be the idea that you don't respond to the light. Now, this sounds similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light shine. That's more about evangelism for the church. There are implications for that here, but the primary point is not that. He's actually talking about the word of God is the light, and you need to respond to that light of revelation, that light of illumination. You need to respond to that word. One... Uh, documentary that has recently come out. I'm sure you've maybe heard of it or if not seen It's called What is a Woman? And uh, shocker that you have to have a documentary on that question. <laughs> and the interviewer goes around and he asks various people, what is a woman? And you have many people who just will not or cannot define what a woman is. And one, he goes to uh, different Places he goes to one um, university, and he interviews a gender studies professor, who asks him, "Like, what are you looking to find? What are you really after here?" And the interviewer says, "This. Well, I want to get to the truth. I want to get to the truth." And uh, the professor says this in response: "I'm really uncomfortable with that language." it sounds deeply transphobic. And then as the interviewer continues to seek for clarity on this basic question that a lifetime appointed Supreme Court justice apparently can't answer either, he says this, you keep invoking the word truth, which is condescending and rude. Now, Those in rebellion against God are uncomfortable with truth. That makes sense. Why would someone reject the illumination of the truth, of the Word? The reason is because they love the darkness. And I'm not picking on one brand of sin. You know that anyone in any sin doesn't like the truth. And actually, I think part of the, the slide we see into accepting that which is not reality is because that's kind of convenient for your own conscience. That if you're like, well, I don't really like how the word affects me and uh, nails me on my sin. And so I'll, I'll just say this stuff too about other people because I can't handle the truth either. And listen to what John chapter 3 says about this issue. John chapter 3 verse 19 John 3:19 says and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil Do you see that Why do they not want the light why do they love the darkness? Because their works were evil. It's their sin. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And this is how all of us are born. Why would they hate the light? Be- simply because of their, their wicked acts. It says they, they hate the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the fear, exposure, exposure, the guilt of that, the shame of that. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 1, 18 as suppressing the truth, right? Jesus puts it in the terms of, hey, no one lights a lamp, a physical lamp, and then hides it somewhere, but they certainly do that with the metaphor that he's getting at, which is when the word of God shines in truth, they want to Turn that off. They want to close that book. They want to suppress that truth. They want to put that light somewhere else, conceal it. Why? Because it, it convicts them, it condemns them. And the point of this illustration by Jesus is that you would receive the illumination the Word of Christ brings. The word of Christ illumines and makes clear the will of God and the way to God, right? The, the word of God explains very clearly how to come to God, how to know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith and trust in him. Very clear. It also shows us the will of God and how, what it looks like to please him, how, how we are to live and organize our lives in a way that would glorify him. That's the light the word of God brings. Therefore, we must seek to resist suppressing it or trying to cover it up. The goal of the light of God's word is to be seen. It is clear. And so how can you receive the illumination of the word? Very practically, I think it's a good practice to pray before you read the Bible. Not a long prayer, but just ask the Lord for help. Ask for illumination. Ask for clarity on what you are reading. The author dwells within you, dear Christian. (laughs) Now, he will guide you then into the meaning of the truth, not in some mystical way, but will guide you as you seek to apply the normal means of understanding any text, right? A literal, grammatical, historical reading of the text, just basic principles for reading a text. So begin with prayer. See, here's how it works. If sin is what keeps us from receiving the illumination of the word, then we must repent of sin before coming to study the Bible, right? It would be a good practice to just in your heart of hearts before the word is even preached or before the service starts, just have a moment to say, Lord, I don't even know all the sins I've committed this week, but please forgive me and the sins I do know about Forgive me, so I can hear or write your word. Now, wouldn't you know it? James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe at first, but later did, listen to what he says and how close it is to what we're talking about. In James 1, I call this how to listen to a sermon, <laughs> what James is saying here. He says in James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, we we often think about that, like, on its own, and that's a good principle for interpersonal relationships. But actually, he's talking about the Word of God and hearing the Word of God. So so as you come to the Word of God, brothers and sisters, be quick to hear the Word of God. Be slow to speak back. No, no, no. You know, and, and talk back to what you're hearing. And be slow to anger at the Word. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So that's what you need to do before you hear the word. And then, notice the next phrase, and receive with meekness or humility the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And then he'll go on to talk about being a doer of the word. So this is like very practical. James is helping us. He's saying, before you study your Bible, repent of sin, right? There are a lot of scholars who write commentaries on the Bible. They're not Christians, but they are good at grammar and syntax and you know, telling you what this word has been used by and they make observations about the text, but they don't believe the text, right? So there's a sense in which you could do a lot of study, but they're not starting that way. That's why it's so key that there's personal preparation for reading the word and that we repent of sin, that is how you have more out of your Bible. Repent before reading the Bible so that you can receive more riches of revelation. Let me say that again for you because I worked hard on it. I want you to know. <laughs> I'm finally not quoting someone. So. <laughs> Repent before reading the Bible so that you can receive more riches of revelation. So sin leads you to make mistakes in the interpretation of the text. And why would that be? Why is that? Because you don't want the text to mean what it says when you're disobedient. Right? That's pretty obvious. Hermeneutics, the study of the Bible, the principles that you apply to study the text, um, is, yes, there are definite principles, but, but there's a human factor and we mess it up. We, the problem is not with the text. The problem is with the reader sometimes because we come with preconceived uh, things that we, we don't want the text to say. And so we need to seek the Lord in that way. So preparation for Bible study is key. So the first way we are to submit to the teaching of the word of God is by receiving the illumination of the word. Second, we must submit to the teaching of the word by repenting at the exposure of the word. We must repent at the exposure of the word. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So though a person may seek to hide the light, they'll never be able to fully extinguish the light. In fact, there will be a day when all attempts at suppressing the light will come to an end. In that day, everything will be exposed by the light of God's word. The word will reveal the true nature of all things and every person. It will lay things bare. Everything hidden will be manifest. Every person will be seen as they truly are. Nothing you have thought or done will be hidden from the light of God's word to expose it. And you cannot escape from the word. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Paul knew this, and he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Or sorry, starting in verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light, there's our language, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's another passage, Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five, starting verse seven. Paul writes, Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true." And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As we said, people want to hide their sin because it is shameful. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is the first sin, and they sought to make clothing to cover themselves to hide their shame. To respond rightly to the word, you must welcome the exposure of it. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. This is what he prays for. Here's a believer who understands this. David writes in Psalm 19, verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He he wants God to. Discern his errors so that he can see them. How can I know these things? What's the exposure of the word that reveals these things? When the word of God reveals your heart to you and your sin, you must respond in repentance. Now, as a Christian, we understand that exposure from God of our sin is a gracious act of God. It is a kindness of the Lord to show us our sin. It's an opportunity then. Every exposure is an opportunity to receive grace and forgiveness. Listen to Hosea 6, what the Lord says to Israel. He says, come, let us return to Yahweh. Or this is uh, Hosea speaking on behalf of, uh, of Yahweh to, to call Israel to repentance. And he says, come, let us return to Yahweh for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Right. This exposure, which hurts is for a good purpose. It is to bring us to repentance. Are there areas where you refuse to let the word of Christ shine in your life? Is there sin you refuse to confess and repent of and deal with biblically? Is there a sin you're afraid to be revealed and exposed? I think all of us could say yes to that. It will be exposed. So expose it now before the lord and if necessary before others proverbs 28:13 says whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy this is a grace of god if god exposes your sin and you see it with clarity don't waste that opportunity and seek to cover it up again, let that exposure have its intended effect. Seek the Lord's forgiveness for that sin. Believers welcome the exposure of their sin. They want to repent of it because they want to be close to God and they know that sin hinders their relationship. But those who refuse to repent and continue to conceal their sin will find on the last day that God will expose all of it but then it will be too late and it will all be manifest. Now, for the believer, we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear of that future judgment because our verdict has already been proclaimed over our lives as justified, righteous. God sees us with the righteous robes of Christ's righteousness. And, uh, That's redundant, (laughs) but you know what I mean. (laughs) He sees us perfect. And we have no fear of that judgment. And so here's the second response we need to have. It is to repent at the exposure of the word. Our third response is that we need to respond (laughs) to the hearing of the word. Respond to the hearing of the word. In verse 18, look there. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. This first uh, phrase here is kind of where we got our sermon title from. Take care how you hear. This word, take care, it's a word for seeing, for looking at something. Kind of a generic word. And so the idea, it, it, it doesn't come out as much in English, but it's like, look at how you hear, right? Do you see the play? You know, look with your eyes at your ears. <laughs> but of course, hearing in this context refers to hearing with obedience, right? A, a positive response. So he's like, take care, look at this, pay attention to how you are hearing. Are you careful in how you hear the word Well, Jesus gives some motivation here for responding well to the word. Here is why you should be a careful hearer. He says, to those who have, and these are referring to believers, for to the one who has, the one who has responded to the word, they've responded to the light of revelation, and now they have the truth abiding in them. To them, more will be given. They get more truth, more understanding of the text. So if you respond to God's word, you receive more of God's word. But if you reject God's word, then the ability to receive revelation is removed from you. He says, from the one who has not. So this person does not have the truth. They've rejected it. Notice what he says in the next phrase. Even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So this person is self-deceived, right? They think they have the truth. They, they, oh yeah, I understand. I, I, I know. But even what they think they have is is taken away from them. And this is like the perfect illustration of what the parables are all about. These religious leaders, they know the scriptures that they have up to that point. They're familiar with it. They think they have the truth. And yet, they've rejected it. They don't have it. And so Jesus says, what, even what you think you have, it's gonna be taken away. But to those of you who are responding to the word, that good soil, oh, more is gonna come. More and more and more. More and more clarity. It's the idea of use it or lose it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you respond to the word, you grow, and you can take in More. It's like a class where, you know, like, when you go to college, you have, like, prerequisite classes. You're like, oh, man, I really want to take this class first. And then they're like, sorry, you have to, you have to take this prerequisite. And you're like, oh, I don't want that class. You know? uh, and that's the idea. It's like, if you want to progress in maturity as a Christian, there are prerequisites, right? Just start obeying whatever you hear. And, and then more light comes and more maturity comes. Uh, the author of Hebrew makes this very point. Uh, Paul... <laughs> No, Hebrews 5, maybe through Luke, I don't know. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 11, Hebrews five eleven says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child." But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. How do you grow in discernment in knowing the good from the best? It is by practice. It's by doing the word. You want to see the most mature Christians, the most godly Christians? It's not that they have like a bunch of letters after their name. It's because they obey a lot, right? They, you know these people that, that, that just, they're just, tell me what the word says, I'm gonna do it. And they get more knowledge and they, they understand the scriptures better. They understand life better. People who obey the word know the word the best. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs 9.9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning, right? The Proverbs are all about like, get wisdom, buy wisdom, sell all, get wisdom, you know, and, and do whatever you have to do to get wisdom. And to the, to the fool, you, you give them wisdom, and it's like, you know, it's a waste. But to the righteous person, he just gets wiser and wiser still, because he's responding to it. He's receiving it. So if you want to know more of the word, you need to obey more of the word, what you know. Here's some practical questions you can ask. I don't, these are not original to me, but these are just helpful in as you study the Bible to respond to the word. Ask yourself when you hear the word, is there a truth to be believed? Is there a way of life to be followed? Is there a rule to be obeyed? Is there a promise to be embraced? Is there a sin to be avoided? Is there an example to be followed? A blessing to be enjoyed? These are good questions to ask as you study the word. Truth to be obeyed, truth to be believed, way to be followed, rule to be obeyed, promise to be embraced, sin to be avoided, example to be followed, blessing to be enjoyed. These are not exhaustive, but they get you started on thinking through All right, what do I do with the text? What do do I need to do now? So respond to the word of God. Finally, the the final implication for submitting to the teaching of the word is to relate to the God of the word. Relate to the God of the word. Verses 19 to 21. Look at verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. A couple things briefly here. Uh, obviously, his family can't get to him. The crowd is is uh, preventing that. But there's a few things you notice. His, his brothers. This is a clear indication that Mary, after she had Jesus, had other children with Joseph. Um, this is just... I just want to point this out. This is like counter to the idea that Mary uh, remains a perpetual virgin, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, That is false. Um, James, uh, the book of James is a half-brother of Jesus. Jude, half-brother of Jesus. These are not like cousins of his. It's very clear in the text. These are Mary's other children after Jesus. Uh, But, but, you know, we learn from other places that that they were not believing him. In fact, the other gospels... um, Luke is putting this here chrono, not chronologically, but more um, thematically. He's talking about responses to God's word. And so he goes, you know what? That story is really helpful here. So he pulls it in here and throws it in. The other gospel writers, uh, they put it somewhere it, chronologically, and there they give us a little bit more, and they're saying some of his siblings are going, he's out of his mind. What? He's not even eating. He's out of his mind. We need to get him. <laughs> like, and they don't understand what's going on. They're not believing in him yet. You can't get near him. Despite being family, they don't have the VIP backstage all, you know, purpose pass to get to Jesus. They don't have that. And so they're sending word forward, and it gets to Jesus. Hey, your family's outside. Verse 21, but he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is not being mean to his family here we know he loved and cared for them. John 19 is a great example of that as he entrusts the care of his mother to John, uh, which maybe indicates at that point that his his half-brothers are still not believing. Uh, It would venture to say that he would have entrusted uh, to James if James had been believing, but later he actually appears to James personally after the resurrection, and then James is converted. But he cares for them, but he's making a point here. And the point he's making is that being related to Jesus by trust and faith is more important than any family ties. Jesus' true family are those who responded to the word of the gospel. And once again, the emphasis, if we didn't already get it, is responding to the word of God that you have. A similar statement is made in chapter 11, verse 28. Verse 27 says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So it's like people continue to say to Jesus, Oh, your family is so blessed. Your, Your physical family because of who you are. And he's saying, Here are the people who are really truly blessed. It's those who have trusted in me by faith. And as a result... They've produced the fruit of obedience. This is what we call the doctrine of adoption. We become part of God's family through faith. And the evidence that we are Jesus' family, the family resemblance is obedience to the word of God. He's not saying obey to become my family member. He's saying that is the evidence that you are because you've trusted in me. And so now you're a doer of the word. The family resemblance is submission to the father. It's like you see stuff about the royal family and, you know, people in the royal family and they get these titles and things like that and it's fascinating and the royals, people are fascinated with this stuff. And, but the reality is, as a Christian, you are part of the royal family, right? The royal family of the second Adam, of the ruler of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will rule and reign with him. That is our destiny, The Bible, then, is your VIP backstage pass to Jesus. Hearing and doing the word is the way to closeness to Jesus. Closeness comes through the word. We're adopted into God's family through the word. That's what John 1 says. But to to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James 1:18 says, "He brought us forth by the Word of truth, born by the word of truth." And then we continue to grow closer to Christ through the Word. Uh, John 14, John 14, verse 18, 14:18. 18, Jesus says, I, "I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live." In that day you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so Jesus speaks about this closeness that comes through the word, through a response to the word. Another place here in Mark, Mark's gospel, and this family connection to Jesus. In Mark 10, verse 28 Mark 10, 28. The disciples are just amazed that how can anyone be saved? You know? And he says, with, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, and then listen to this, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, right? He's saying, you're coming to the gospel. You're responding to the gospel in faith may come at a great cost. And that may be increasingly so in our culture. It will be increasingly so. And so he's saying, if you lose a close relationship because of your commitment to Christ, the priority you place on that, he's saying this, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and listen to what he says brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life Jesus is saying hey if you lose family now for the sake of the gospel in this life you gain family you gain a hundredfold. You gain a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and these relationships because you truly are a part of a family. This family is the closest family. It ought to be. We are the family of God. We are the children of God. We know this. For some of us, those who have family members who don't know the Lord, we feel we have such an affection for them, but there's such a closeness with those who are not our our, our physical family, but they are our spiritual family because we have so much more in common in our faith in Christ. And so, how do you have a relationship with the God of the Word? It is through the Word. You're brought forth by the Word and you're brought closer by the Word. So, how do you respond to the Word of God, to the Word of the Gospel? Does it pass through your mind like water passes through a pipe? making virtually no impact on the pipe whatsoever? Or does the word of God pass through your heart like water passes through a vine, a root? And as it passes through to get to other parts of the root, it nourishes. It has an effect upon you. That is the difference between being a dead heart and a living heart. The word passes through the heart of a believer and it nourishes that root as it passes on. For for those who don't know the Lord, they can have it just pass right through their minds. It flows through like a pipe. It doesn't affect it. It leaves no difference than when it wasn't there before. What has God impressed upon your heart this morning through his word? Will you do it? Will you respond? May God give us grace to respond continually to his word throughout the week. And he will, dear Christian. He will in your life. He will continue to help you to do so. But continue to pray for light. I want to remind you of the story I began with. Is the sermon done? No. It has been said, but it has not yet been done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us it is a light and a lamp to our path. In a world of confusion, we have clarity. In a world of corruption, we are conformed to the image of your dear son through the word of God. Would you continue to grow in us a love for the word because you produce in us an obedience to the word that it becomes more and more precious to us. May we be a community that is truly a family grounded upon your word, prioritizing it above all because we prioritize and love the God of the word. We thank you again, Lord. Minister to us throughout the week through the light of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a great hymn to respond to in Christ alone.